Today's reading is from um, Psalm 23, verses 1 to 6. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together once again today to be able to hear your word. We trust the promises of Isaiah 55 that your word will not return to you empty, but will accomplish all that you desire, everything for which you sent it. And so we're praying that your word would do its work today. We're praying that as we study this familiar psalm that I'm guessing many people in this room, if not all, are at least somewhat familiar with, we're praying that we would be comforted by these words, that we would be reminded that you will never leave us, that you are always with us, And so, Father, we pray that today your word would do its work, that it would help us to remember that you are a great shepherd, that we are the sheep, that we need your guidance. And ultimately, we pray that we would leave today with a greater desire to worship you. So, Father, as always, our prayer today is that you would work through your word, that you would do a great and mighty work in this congregation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the fact is, if you're going to do a series on Psalms, at some point you probably have to talk about Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is probably, at least for my money, the best known of all of the Psalms. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that that's everyone's favorite. In fact, if we were to take a poll this morning of your favorite Psalm, I'm not necessarily suggesting that Psalm 23 would win the poll. But when it comes to the culture at large, there is no doubt in my mind that Psalm 23 stands alone as the best known Psalm. And that fact is evidenced by the use of Psalm 23 in popular culture, whether it be in movies like Saving Private Ryan or Titanic or in songs by artists ranging from The Grateful Dead to U2 to Jay-Z to Kanye West. It's obvious that Psalm 23 has made its way into the collective conscience of America. On the fateful day of September 11, 2001, when President George W. Bush was addressing the nation, you may remember that at the end of that address, he famously quoted from Psalm 23. Of all the psalms that he could have quoted, it was Psalm 23, verse 4, that he picked. And so it seems fitting that as we end this summer and as we continue our series on psalms, that at some point we turn our attention to this psalm, Psalm 23. There's a reason why in the years that have gone by, singers and songwriters, screenwriters and orators, musicians have all turned to Psalm 23 because there's something majestic and something beautiful about the poetry of this psalm. But there's also a reason why at many hospital beds, at many gravesides, this is the psalm that has been read. Because there is something comforting and reassuring about the words in this familiar psalm. And so my hope today is that as we read these ancient words inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we too would be comforted. That we too would be reminded that God is always with us. And so again, let's read Psalm 23. Uh, I have no doubt I will not read it as well as Kim did. I could listen to Kim read Psalms all day, but I will do my best. 
Psalm 23, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, Psalm 23 has traditionally been labeled as a psalm of confidence or a psalm of trust. And I think that both of those things accurately describe what's happening in this psalm. I think the psalmist is trying to give us confidence that God will indeed provide and protect for his people. He's trying to give us a trust that we can trust God no matter the circumstances. And to do that, he gives us two images. In verses 1 through 4, he gives us the more famous image of the shepherd. And then verses 5 through 6, he talks about the Lord being a host, inviting us into his house. And so I think it's worthwhile for us to deal with both of those, probably primarily focusing on the shepherd, as that takes up the larger proportion of the psalm. And so let's start there. Let's start with this idea that the Lord is our shepherd. Now this idea of God as a divine shepherd is one that is seen throughout Scripture, whether it be in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, or certainly in the New Testament, we see this idea that God is our shepherd. And before we go any further, it's probably helpful to pause here and make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we talk about a shepherd. I realize that we are not in an agricultural setting here in Westchester County. I know sometimes they call it upstate New York, but I assure you, upstate New York cannot be like this, right? It's not an agricultural place. And so let's just make sure that we're all on the same page for what a shepherd is. I'm guessing almost everyone knows this, but let's just make sure a shepherd takes care of the sheep. But what you need to know and what may be unfamiliar to you is that for a shepherd, this was not a nine-to-five job. Especially in ancient times, I would imagine in places around the world, this is still true today. You do not clock in at nine o'clock, clock out at five, and then come back and hope the sheep are there in the morning. If you are a shepherd, you live with the sheep. You are there with them 24-7, and that means you are putting up with a variety of difficult circumstances. To start with, you have to deal with the terrain. You have to lead the sheep through rocks and crevices, caves, and avoid holes and all kinds of dangerous terrain that may come up. You have to deal with the weather. No matter what climate you live in, if you are outside 24-7, eventually you are going to deal with some awful weather. You have to deal with wild animals, wolves and bears, other things that might attack the sheep. And maybe most importantly, you have to deal with the sheep themselves. As I've said before when we talked about sheep and God being our shepherd, sheep are dumb. They are dumb animals. They are foolish animals. Sometimes they'll get flipped over on their back and they can't even get up. They need help. They are a foolish, pitiful animal and they need help. And so being a shepherd is not an easy job. There are lots of difficult things that come with being a shepherd. And yet despite all these difficult things, the shepherd puts up with them because his job is to protect and to provide for the sheep. And that's what we need to keep in mind here in Psalm 23. This is the thing that we see over and over, that God protects and provides for his sheep. And we see this starting in verse 1. Verse 1 says this of Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now one of the things that's great about Psalm 23 is there's a personal nature to it. He doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd or the Lord is the shepherd. He says the Lord is my shepherd. 
He goes on to say that he shall not be in want because of this. Now to be clear, the psalmist is not suggesting that whatever he wants, he will get. That's not what he's saying. And despite what prosperity gospel teachers may say, that is not true of what we read in the Bible. Just because you want something does not mean you get it. In fact, when we were reading in 1 Peter, we were reminded over and over and over that difficult things happen in the lives of Christians. And so that's not what's being suggested here. What the psalmist is saying is that anything we truly need, we will not be in want of. That God will provide everything that we truly need. This is similar to the line of thinking in Matthew 6. You may remember that famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus points to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And he says, if God takes care of these, how much more will he take care of you? And that passage comes to a capstone in Matthew 6.33 when he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The idea being that everything you need, God will give you. Now, as we've said before, it's probably worth pointing out that there may be a gap between what you think you need and what God knows you need. You may think that you need a clean bill of health, or you may think that you need a life of ease and comfort, or you may think that you need a bank account that's full and healthy. But God knows what you need. And the point of Psalm 23 is that you will never be in want of the things that you actually need because he provides and he protects for his sheep. In fact, that line of thinking continues in verse 2. Verse 2 of Psalm 23 says this, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, both of those things are things that shepherds would do to make sure that the sheep are getting adequate rest that they are being fed, that they are able to get a drink. In other words, these are things a shepherd will do to provide for the sheep. Again, the point is simple, that God provides for his sheep. He provides for his people. And in verse 3, this continues, although there's a bit of a shift here from the analogy of the sheep and the shepherd to this straightforward spiritual talk. Verse 3 says this. It says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. The Lord restores souls. This is something that some of you need to hear today. That he restores souls. For some of you, you need your souls restored in a once and for all way. You've never trusted in Christ as your Savior. And you need to be made a new creation. And that happens by trusting and believing that Jesus died on the cross for sin. You need your souls restored in that way. For others of you here, you are just going through the motions. You have lost your spiritual fervor. It's as if you're in the spiritual doldrums and you need help. And what Psalm 23 would say is that you should cry out to Him because He is the one who restores souls. You cannot restore your own soul. You cannot rejuvenate your own spiritual life. He is the one who must do it. But this is what He does. He restores the souls of His sheep. And so if you're in that position today and you're lacking passion or lacking a desire to follow Him, know this, you can cry out to Him and He restores souls. Not only that, He leads us in passive righteousness. He leads us in passive righteousness through His Word, through His Spirit. And He does this, we're told in verse 3, for His namesake. Now this is where we begin to wonder what's going on. Because what you would expect to find here is that it would say he leads in passive righteousness for the sake of the sheep. Or for our sake. And those things would both be true. But that's not what it says. Instead what it says he leads in passive righteousness for his name's sake. What this means is that God is leading his sheep so that he might be able to highlight the greatness of his name. 
He is leading the poor and pitiful, foolish sheep down the path of righteousness so that he might be able to highlight his greatness and his name might be made great. Now, maybe that strikes you as arrogant. Why does he care that his name is made great? Well, what you need to understand is that you were created to worship him. You were created to find satisfaction in him alone because only he can satisfy And so the reason he cares that you would highlight his name is because he knows the only way you will be satisfied in this life is if you are worshiping him and delighting in him. Everything else you pursue, whether it be money or whether it be sex, whether it be power, whether it be things, whether it be the approval of people or any other thing you can name, will not satisfy. It won't, not in the long run. And some of you here this morning, you know that. You know that because you're living it right now. You are trying to pursue after those other things, whether it be any of those things I mentioned, money or sex or power or things, and you have discovered time and again that they will not satisfy. They may satisfy for a moment. They may satisfy for a period of time, but they will not satisfy forever. You were created to be satisfied in one way, and that's by delighting and worshiping in God. And this is why he wants his name to be highlighted. This is why he's leading in passive righteousness for his namesake. Because he knows that that and that alone will satisfy us. As J.D. Greer has said, his presence and approval are all we need for everlasting joy. So God is not being arrogant here when he says that we should praise his name. He's just being loving. As John Piper has put it, God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving thing. He leads us down paths of righteousness so that we could praise his name and delight in him and so that we could show other people his greatness as well. This is what he does. He protects and provides so that we might glorify his greatness. He also comforts and stays with us. That's verse 4. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that the reason why many people love Psalm 23 is because of verse 4. When you think of Psalm 23, this is probably the verse that you think of. This is the verse that has been read, no doubt, by many hospital beds. This is the verse that as many have been at the graveside laying their loved ones into the ground. This is the verse that they've often focused on. No doubt, this is the verse that has been read on many dark and weary nights. I would guess that for maybe even some in this room, Psalm 23, 4 is drenched with tears because this is where we turn in times of darkness. And for good reason. There is something that is comforting beyond measure here in Psalm 23, 4. That even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Now for the record, the valley of the shadow of death, I don't think specifically refers to death. I think that could be included, but I think it's broader than that. When the psalmist talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what he's talking about is walking through excruciatingly difficult circumstances. Now that might include death, but he's speaking to something larger than that. He's saying when you are walking through a place that feels as if there is no hope, when you are walking through a place that feels as if there is no life, know this, that God is with you. Now there's a very interesting shift here in verse 4. Notice that in the first three verses, when he's referring to God, he refers to him as he. 
As in, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But now here in verse 4, it is you. It's you. It says, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. There's something more personal about verse 4. It's as if there's been a shift in the psalmist's mind that he's not thinking of God as some distant God and thinking of him in some theological way, but now he's thinking of him in a personal way. He's thinking of him in a relationship. He leads me beside still waters, but you are with me during the valley of the shadow of death. I don't think that's a coincidence because oftentimes when we're walking through that valley of the shadow of death, that's when we are most aware of his presence. This is why I think there's a shift here to you. And I think it's that personal element of verse 4 that makes this verse so precious and so profound. He is with his sheep. Now to be clear, I think it's probably helpful for us to define what we mean by his sheep. His sheep, as the New Testament would define it, are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. When we are talking about his sheep, When we are talking about the shepherd leading his sheep, the shepherd never departing from his sheep, what we mean are those who have trusted and believed in the name of Jesus Christ. We mean those who have turned to him for salvation. Those are his sheep. And what we are told is that he will never abandon his sheep. And this is one of the great truths that resonates throughout Scripture. Hebrews 13.5 says that he will never leave or abandon his people. Romans 8, 35 to 39 says that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And so know this, no matter how dark things are, he will never leave you. He will never abandon his sheep. He has his shepherding tools, his rod and his staff, and he will not abandon or leave the sheep behind. And for some of you, this is what you desperately need to hear today. Because for a lot of you, this last year has felt like you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe it's because of some physical issue you're dealing with. Maybe it's because of some financial difficulties you've been in. Maybe it's because of relational problems that you've been having this last year. Maybe it's emotional issues that you're dealing with. Whatever it is, know this, he has not abandoned you. He is still with you. It may feel like he's abandoned you. And it may feel like other people have abandoned you. And in fact, maybe that is the case. Maybe some have abandoned you. Maybe you feel like there are friends who have betrayed you or family members who have let you down. But know this, even in those moments when others abandon you, he never will. In fact, this is exactly what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. If you want, you can turn there for a second. 2 Timothy 4, all the way to the New Testament. Just a few books to the left of Hebrews. 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 to 18. This is Paul talking. He says this, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so what Paul's saying in 2 Timothy 4 is that everyone else has abandoned him. He's been deserted by his friends. He's been deserted by the ones that love him or that he thought loved him. And yet what he's aware of and what he knows is true is that God never left him. And that God will bring him safely into the kingdom. 
And so for those who are Christians, here is your reality. He will never abandon you. Never. Now others may abandon you. You may have friends who betray. You may have family members who let you down. But He will never set you aside. He will never leave you. He will never leave you. Now, it may feel like He's left you. There's a reason why the psalmist refers to it as the valley of the shadow of death because it feels like there's no life. It feels like there is no hope. But despite how it may feel, we as Christians cling to the promises of a verse like this or Hebrews 13 or Romans 8 that he never leaves his people. And let's be honest, that fact makes all the difference. Uh, some of you know that in the last couple of months, we moved from our house in Mount Kisco to a house in Cortland Manor. And uh, to say that there's a difference in the two settings would be an understatement, to say the least. In Mount Kisco, we lived on a very, very busy street. It was always busy. It was close to the train station. And no matter what time of day it was, there was always traffic. At some times of day, the traffic would be backed up. You probably couldn't go more than 15 seconds during the day without a car driving by. And it was always noisy. Even during the night, there would be, uh, seemed like there would be ambulances or fire trucks driving by, people driving by, sometimes honking. It was well lit. It was just a very, very busy street. Our house in Cortland Manor is pretty much the exact opposite. There's very little traffic, maybe seems like four or five cars a day, and there's not very much lighting, and it's very quiet, to the point that the first night we were there and we stepped outside, it was eerie. It's like, what in the world is going on here? Are we back in Iowa? Are we in the cornfields? And we just could not figure it out. Like it, was, it almost felt like someone was watching us. We were so unfamiliar with it. It was so quiet in comparison. And so what's happened is that our kids, particularly Karis, they're a little bit scared to get out of the car in Cortland Manor when it's nighttime. Uh, our boys, they can be a little scared, but usually they'll run straight in the house. But the first thing Karis almost always says when I open the sliding door of the van when it's night and we're home, she goes, it's scary. She says that almost every time, it's scary. I say, you know, it's, Karis, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. But sometimes we have our hands full, and so we tell her, you're going to have to run inside by herself. And, and she'll do it, but she'll kind of whine, and she'll whimper along the way, and she just does not like it at all. But when we have the opportunity to hold her hand or to carry her, well, she has a completely different mindset. Right? She's, she's not worried at all. She knows that we're right beside her. Now, here's the thing. In both of those cases, whether she's running on her own or whether one of us is holding her hand, the circumstances are exactly the same. It's still just as dark. It's still just as quiet. It's still just as scary. But the difference is that she knows we're with her. The difference is she knows that we won't leave her. She feels our presence. She feels us holding her or she feels us holding her hand. It's kind of the same for us, isn't it? It's kind of the same for us. When we are walking through difficult things, if we know that He is with us, if we know that He is not abandoning us, it makes all the difference. If we know that He is the one charting the path, if we know that He is the one who's going before us, if we know that He is the one who's guiding us, it changes our perspective and our attitude completely. Because we know that as long as we're with Him, we will be safe. In the eternal sense, right? Paul, in 2 Timothy 4, talks about how the Lord will deliver him safely to the kingdom. Well, that's a pretty bold statement for someone who would be killed because of his Christian faith. He's not talking about physical safety. He's talking about spiritual safety there. And the reality is that if you are in Christ, he will get you to the kingdom because he is charting the course. Now, the fact of the matter is that sometimes that course leads to the valley of the shadow of death. 
But what you need to understand is that that is part of the journey just as much as the other parts. As Derek Kidner says it. He says the dark valley is just as much a part of the righteous path as the green pastures and the still waters. And if you believe that, if you believe that he's in control, and if you believe that he's the one guiding, and that he is the one leading you in those situations, then it will make all the difference. It will make all the difference. The circumstances may be the same. It's like they were for my daughter Karis. The circumstances may be the same, but the fact that he is with you, oh, that changes everything. And know this, he is with you. He is with you. You do not need to fear evil because you know that he has a good and perfect plan for his sheep. You know that he protects and he provides for his sheep. And so we have this great image of the Lord as our shepherd. Now, there's a second image in this passage, and that is that he is our host. So verses 1 through 4, the more famous of the images, he's our shepherd. Verses 5 and 6, he's our host. He invites us into his home. Again, Psalm 23. It's time verses 5 and 6. He says this. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now one thing I appreciate about the psalmist here is he is a realist. He says that you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In other words, he's not denying that there will be hard things in life. He points out that he will have enemies. But what he says is that in the midst of those enemies, in the midst of those difficulties, God is preparing a table. And then he goes on to mention a couple things. He says that he anoints his head with oil and his cup is overflowing. Both of those are marks of a good host. When someone came, if you were a good host, you would offer oil or perfume because they would be hot and sweaty and smelly from traveling. And so this is a way to show that you're caring, you're providing To fill the cup to overflowing means that you are taking care of all of their needs. And so the point of both of those things is that he provides for his people. It's the same as the shepherd imagery, but now it's in the image of being a host. That he provides for his people. He protects them. He invites them into his house and he offers them to live there forever. This is the language of Psalm 23. That we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the message here of Psalm 23 for Christians is this, that God protects and provides for his sheep, his people. Now in saying that, I'm making a couple of assumptions here that we understand. One of them is that you understand that you are the sheep, that we are the sheep. This psalm is largely written from the perspective of the sheep. And the fact of the matter is that we need to acknowledge that we are those sheep. And in doing so, there's some significant implications. Peter Craig explains, he says, Psalm 23 is written consistently from the perspective of the sheep. That is, its expression of trust and confidence presupposes an awareness of helplessness and need on the part of the one who trusts. In other words, what he's saying is that if you come to this psalm and you realize you are the sheep and you are comforted by this, you are assuming or you're understanding, you're presupposing that you are a sheep who's in need, a sheep who is helpless. One of the things that's obvious as I read Psalm 23 this week is there is a stark difference between our actions and his. The amount of actions that we take as sheep in this passage is very small. We lie down in green pastures. We walk through the valley of shadow death. We fear no evil. We dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All those things that are mentioned, though, are completely dependent upon him. 
We lie down in green pastures because he makes us. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death because he is with us. We fear no evil because he is in our presence. We dwell in the house of the Lord forever because he invited us in. Right? Every single thing that we do as sheep in this passage is dependent upon him. That is not the case for him. Everything that he does, everything the shepherd does, is on his own accord. And there are a lot of things he does in this passage. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. He leads us in passive righteousness. He is with us. He comforts us. He prepares a table for us. He anoints our heads with oils. He fills our cup to overflowing. The comparison in this passage between our actions and his is borderline ridiculous. There is no comparison at all. We are the recipients. He is the giver. We are the sheep. He is the shepherd. We are the guest. He is the host. We are the needy, foolish, dirty sheep in need of protection and provision. We are the lost, poor, stranded travelers in need of a home. And Psalm 23 says he is willing to provide those things for us. Listen, if you're here today and you think you have it all figured out, you think you've got life figured out, you think everything is easy, then Psalm 23 probably is not going to be very comforting to you. If on the other hand, you are here today and you recognize that you are a poor, helpless sheep, then Psalm 23 is going to be very good news indeed. Very good news indeed. The fact of the matter is, though, that whether you think you have it figured out or not is irrelevant because the fact of the matter is you don't. You may think you do, but the Bible is clear that all of us are the sheep. The book of Isaiah says that all of us have gone astray like sheep. We are the sheep. And so if you're here today and you recognize that you need help, if you recognize that you struggle with sin, if you recognize that your life is not perfect, if you recognize that there are things in your life that are difficult, if you recognize that there are things that happen in this world that are not easy to deal with, if you recognize that you do not have it all figured out, then Psalm 23 will be very good news for you. It will be very good news because Psalm 23 is a psalm for those who know they are weak. Psalm 23 is a psalm for those who feel like they are alone. Psalm 23 is a psalm for those who know that there's a possibility that one day we'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so one of the assumptions of Psalm 23 is that we understand we are the sheep. You are the sheep. I'm the sheep. We are helpless and we are in need. Now the other thing I think we could say is this, that the way he provides, this is the other thing that we're assuming we understand, the way he provides is ultimately through Jesus. Now, if you've been at this church for any amount of time, if you've been with us the last few weeks in the book of Psalms, it is not going to surprise you that I'm going to tell you that Psalm 23 points to Christ. But the fact of the matter is, it is true. Both of the images that are given here are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the shepherd. And just so you think I'm not making this up, I want you to turn with me for a second to John chapter 10. All right, John 10. Starting in verse 10. Jesus is the fulfillment here. Jesus is the shepherd. John 10, starting in verse 10. This is Jesus talking, by the way. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And on and on he goes here in John 10. I think you get the point because he actually says it twice. He says, I am the good shepherd. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 23. When we're talking about the Lord is our shepherd, this is who ultimately we are pointing to. We are pointing to Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd because he laid down his life for the sheep. He died on the cross so that the sheep might be able to live. Again, Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The shepherd died for the sheep. But here's the thing. Dead shepherds usually aren't that helpful, are they? It might be noble that a shepherd would die for the sheep. But let's be honest, that's not really helpful to the sheep because the next morning there's no shepherd there. But the great news about this shepherd is that yes, he died, but he did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. A dead sheep cannot protect the flock, but we do not have a dead shepherd. We have a shepherd who's alive. And he will protect and he will provide. Yes, he died, but he rose again. And so know this, it may be noble for a shepherd to die for his sheep, but it's not really helpful. But in Jesus' case, he died and he rose again. And he is helpful because he's still alive. This is our hope today. that The shepherd who died for the sheep is still living. As John 10 goes on to say, no one will snatch the sheep from his hand. Here's the thing. We know that Jesus will never abandon us in the valley of the shadow of death because he has already conquered death. He has no fear of the valley of the shadow of death because he's already defeated it. He's already walked through the valley of the shadow of death and he's come out on the other side triumphant. And so the confidence you can have is that when you are walking through that valley, the one who's walking beside you is victorious. He has already defeated death and he has no fear. And this is why we don't have to fear either. Because the one who's walking with us has already defeated death. Oh, that is comforting, is it not? That the one who will never abandon us, that the one who is our great shepherd, it's not just that he's a courageous shepherd, and that's true. It's that he's a shepherd who's already defeated all of the enemies. And so he has no fear. And this is why we have no fear either. Jesus is the great shepherd. Now, he's also the host, too. He's also the host. In Revelation 19, there's another table that's spoken of. It's the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who believe in the Lamb who is slain, those who believe that Jesus died on the cross, these are the ones who will sit at that table, and they will sit there forever. Now, I don't think it's coincidental that he is the Lamb. Of course, part of it points to the book of Exodus when the blood of the lamb above the door is what rescues people. It's the blood of the lamb in our hearts, believing in Christ's shed blood. This is what rescues us too. But it's also, in light of what we're reading here in Psalm 23, not coincidental that he is the lamb. right? Because not only is he the shepherd, he became one of the sheep. He became one of the sheep so he could rescue the sheep. Yes, he's the shepherd, but he also became the sheep. He became man so he could rescue man. And for those who trusted in Christ, they will sit forever at the table. And it's not as if we're just temporary house guests. As the rest of the New Testament makes clear, we are adopted into his family. And so that is why we can say with confidence in Psalm 23, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's because we're not just guests who are overstaying our welcome. We are part of the family. We've been brought into the family through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so what we have here is that the reason why we can be confident 
that he is our shepherd and that he is our host is because of what Jesus did. It was because he was forsaken on the cross that we have hope that we'll be with him forever and that he'll never abandon us and that he is our great shepherd. In fact, that's one of the beautiful things about the context of Psalm 23 because the psalm that comes right before it sets up what happens in Psalm 23. So turn one more time to Psalms, this time Psalm 22. The psalm right before it is a beautiful reminder of why Psalm 23 is true. All right, I'm going to read just a few verses here in Psalm 22. I'm going to start in verse 1, and then I'll skip to verse 14. I would encourage you to read the entire context this week. But verse 1 says this. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now let's skip ahead to verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now we'll just pause there and say this. This is clearly pointing to Jesus. This is a messianic psalm. Who is the one who is forsaken? It's Jesus. When he's on the cross, what psalm is he quoting? Psalm 22. Who's the one whose hands and feet were pierced? It's Jesus. Who's the one who had his clothing, that people were casting lots for his clothing? It's Jesus. As Charles Spurgeon says, Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. And as Spurgeon points out, it is only because of the fact that Jesus was forsaken that we can have any confidence that he's the shepherd. So it's Psalm 22 that sets up Psalm 23. Because he died on the cross, this is why we can have confidence that he will never leave us or forsake us, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's only because we have one with nail-pierced hands and feet walking beside us that we have confidence as we walk through that valley. It's only because Jesus defeated death and evil that we no longer fear fear those things ourselves. Listen, I have no idea what you're going through today. Unless you told me, of course, then I might know. But otherwise, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're going through. And I certainly cannot say what you'll go through in the future. Because I don't know. But what I do know is this. If you are a Christian, he will never leave you. He's not left you. If you feel like he's left you, it's it's not true. The Bible is clear. He will never leave you. And whatever may come your way, he will never leave you then either. As you walk through that valley, and that valley is coming for all of us, there is one with nail-pierced hands walking beside us. As you feel abandoned, know this, the one who was abandoned by God is there with you. If it feels that wicked and evil is triumphing in your life, know that the one who's triumphed over wicked and evil is standing with you. That's the beauty of Psalm 23. The beauty of Psalm 23 is not found in the poetic language of Psalm 23 or its profound simplicity. I think that's what appeals to our popular culture about Psalm 23, that in even the English language, the beauty of the Hebrew is carried over, that there's something poetically majestic here. But that's not where the beauty of Psalm 23 is found. The beauty of Psalm 23 is in a bloody Savior who has nail-pierced hands walking beside us, never abandoning us. 
That is where the beauty of Psalm 23 is found. And that, my friends, is where our hope is found. It is found in the Savior who never leaves his people. The good shepherd. The good host. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the familiar Psalm 23. We know that it has been a medicine for many people's souls over the years. And for good reason. For good reason. Because it is a psalm that inspires confidence. It is a psalm that inspires trust. And we're praying that today we would be inspired in that way. That we would be more confident leaving here. Because we've been reminded of what Jesus did. That we would be more trusting leaving here. Because we know that you are the shepherd who never leaves his people. God, we thank you for the familiar words of Psalm 23. We thank you for the familiar words of Psalm 23:4 that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. This is our hope. This is our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.